morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning is Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. Please stand with me in honor of God's word and follow along as I read. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." This is God's word. You may be seated. So we are continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians through that book. Um, And the series is called Cruciform Living. So cruciform in the shape of the cross, shaped by the cross. Our lives should be shaped by the cross. The cross is everything to us. It's at the center of our lives. It should be at the center of our lives. And it should change how we live. So the title of the message today is Cruciform Freedom. Does that sound like an oxymoron? Cruciform Freedom. So if you're crucified with Christ, what do you do on a cross? There's only one thing you do on a cross. Die. Suffer and die. (laughs) There. Doesn't it sound like freedom? Isn't that great? So the cross... Freedom doesn't seem to fit, but hopefully by the end it will make more sense if it doesn't seem to make sense at this point. So last week, this week, and next week, we're looking at chapters 8, 9, and 10 respectively. So Pastor Tyler um, preached on chapter 8 last week, this week, chapter 9, next week, Lord willing, chapter 10. So it all hangs together, actually. Chapters 8 to 10 hang together, and they're all about rights and freedom Freedoms and love. So rights and freedoms as Christians, like we believe humans do have rights. We're made in the image of God, so we have dignity and worth. Human beings should have rights. Those rights should be protected. Oftentimes they are trampled on, so Christians should work and have, and they have worked over um, decades and centuries and millennia even for human rights, justice and righteousness. So abolition, desegregation, equal pay for equal work, equal opportunities for people from any and all ethnic backgrounds, etc. Lots of rights that we should work for. But here, 
um, Paul does an interesting thing in talking about freedoms and rights as a Christian because in a lot of cases he's saying that we should deny those rights. We should set them aside in the interest of love. And yet he doesn't do that all the time. You know that interesting spot in Acts 22 where he is in Jerusalem and he got himself in trouble with the crowd and they're about ready to flog him. The leaders are about ready to flog him, some of the, the authorities, after he got shouted down by the crowd. And just as they're stretching him out for the whips, do you remember what he did? He claimed his right as a Roman citizen. So he said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? That was not lawful at the time. But they didn't know he was a Roman citizen. So they, whoops, uh-oh. So that was in his best interest. Obviously, he's not a glutton for punishment, even though he suffered deeply for his faith and his witness. But this isn't a selfish appeal, right? <laughs> and yet there's a lot of talk in our day even among Christians, that promotes and even protects selfishness and greed and opportunism when it comes to rights. Even on a very kind of everyday pedestrian level, do you find yourself saying things like, well, I've got the right to, what's wrong with it? You know, if somebody kind of impinges on your rights or comforts or freedoms or whatever, nobody's going to tell me I can't, that, that, that. I don't care what anybody says or thinks, I'm going to. So those sentiments oftentimes originate in our selfish hearts, and they are at the expense of love, not governed by love. So when our rights and the best interest of others are at odds, the cross of Christ teaches us and shapes us to lay down our rights in the interest of love. Love trumps rights. should. But, again, because there's lots of challenging and sticky scenarios, we need wisdom, we need gospel wisdom, cruciform wisdom to understand and wisely live out our freedoms and our rights and to wisely yield them up when appropriate. So, like I said, chapters 8 to 10, it all hangs together. Pastor Tyler summarized it so well at the end of his, near the end of his message last week when he says that the prospect of sinning against his brother or sister in Christ and therefore sinning against Christ himself, Paul is willing to lovingly and sacrificially lay down his rights, even if that brother or sister has a weaker conscience and their knowledge is limited or, or they're misdirected on something. Like they could be wrong and yet it's the wrong thing to run over them. It's the right thing to yield your right out of love for that weaker brother. So that should be in our mind as we head into chapter 9. We have chapter breaks, but really the thought just continues right on into chapter 9. And so we're going to see Paul's example of how he lived this out. He's not going to call them to do something that he is not living himself. In fact, he's giving them his example so that they can imitate him. They can follow him, which is exactly where he goes at the end of that section, 8 to 10, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's actually 11.1. Okay, so let's dive in and see Paul's example and learn from him and follow him as he follows Christ. So first point, rights and the gospel. The first 18 verses. Um, so Paul says, 
to these Corinthians who are way too focused on their rights and in a selfish way. He says, am I not free? Okay, lest you take my decisions of laying down rights as weakness, I'm well aware of my freedom. I'm in no way a weaker brother. Okay, he tells them that right up front. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus, Jesus our Lord, on the Damascus Road, right? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? So if to others I'm not an apostle, because people were criticizing him, undermining his ministry, calling his legitimacy into question. If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul planted the church in Corinth. It's in existence because of him. Look at verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do you see how that's a key here? Paul is having to go on the defensive. There are some in Corinth who are criticizing him as, as a person, his decisions, his methods, and they're therefore misleading some in the church in Corinth to do the same. So he's got to defend himself, and he's got to defend his methods. But it's important to see why, why he defends himself. It's not pride. It's not out of pride. You know, we often defend ourselves because our pride gets dinged. That's not why Paul's defending himself here. Okay? It's actually in the interest of love. So look at verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So he, he hasn't taken monetary payment from them, and he's actually having to defend that. Do I have the right to do this? Yes, of course. Do I have the right to have a wife? Yes, of course. Do I have the right to refrain from working. So he did tent making sometimes alongside of his ministry. So he says in verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, proverbially speaking here, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So, Corinthians, he writes, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? What answer would he expect there? <laughs> no, of course that wouldn't be too much. That would be reasonable, okay? Just like the soldier being paid, the vintner having some grapes, the shepherd having some milk. Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So some of these other leaders that are coming in and kind of trying to usurp Paul's role and undermine him, you seem to be doing that with them, but don't we have that right? And then here's the key. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So here's Paul's reason. Here's his MO. Hey, do you hear any sympathetic vibrations with some of the 
key verses back in chapter 8. Just You could look back there. Tyler hit these last week. Chapter 8, verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Or verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So the whole point is, I'll endure anything rather than cause an unnecessary obstacle to get in the way of you and the gospel of Christ. So here's the point. Paul didn't want anybody in Corinth to think that they were in it for the money. He would gladly lay down his rights if it meant clearing the way of any potential obstacles for the spread of the gospel. So he goes on, verse 13, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the altar, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Okay, this was the case with the Levites, right? And the priests, that's how they lived. They got their food that way. In the same way, the Lord commanded that, remember the labor deserves his wages, Matthew 10.10, Luke 10.7. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's normal. Okay, so in our day and age, pastors. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. So don't think I'm setting you up for this you know, change in situation. No. I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So Paul voluntarily chose to yield his right to material reward from the Corinthians, remuneration for his work, so that he might share more in eternal reward. Okay, so self-denial was at work in him so that more blessing, gospel life would be spreading among the Corinthians, okay? So basically, Paul's saying he'd rather die than give people reason to think he's just trying to live off the gospel like a parasite. You see? So he goes on to explain a bit more of his reasoning. Look at verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Again, Paul's speaking from his own experience. He's, a, he's an apostle. The whole point is don't be impressed by my untiring boldness in preaching because necessity is laid upon me. I can't do otherwise. That's what Paul is saying about his own life. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He's got this divine compulsion that's just unavoidable because he's this apostle called of God. Verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, in other words, I am just under divine compulsion. I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, at least to the Corinthians. He was supported by other churches, but his pattern was never to take money from the place where he was serving in at the time, like planting a church at the time, because he didn't want any of those weird dynamics to get in the way. So what he would do is he would establish a church, move on, and then the church that is healthy and established, like Philippi, they would send money on ahead and help him out. That was oftentimes his pattern. And if he ran out of money, he'd just start making tents. Okay? So, what then is my reward that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel? So, Paul's being criticized. You can, you can just hear, you know, read between the lines in the context. You can imagine somebody in Corinth who's criticizing Paul. 
Hmm. You know, you get what you pay for. So Paul, he doesn't charge anything. You know, connect the dots. No, that's not the point. Paul needs to explain this, not to just defend his own reputation. He's saying, this was an intentional choice for the sake of the gospel. It's because I'm following Jesus. I didn't want to put any obstacle in your way. I didn't want you to think I was in it for the money. He didn't want them to think he was just another traveling speaker coming to entertain and make money like so many at the time in the Greco-Roman world. He wanted the Corinthians to know that the gospel was available to all, not just to those who could pay for it. You see how these were gospel decisions, gospel moves, cruciform living? This was Paul's example. So the fact that he sometimes had to work as a tent maker, you can imagine how they would play on that. It didn't mean he was a failed apostle. Well, you know, he just doesn't have what it takes to kind of be freed up. No, he chose that way so that he could be a more effective apostle. It wasn't that he was a failed apostle. It was so that he'd be a more effective, fruitful apostle. So he intentionally denied himself rights for the sake of the gospel, for the good of the Corinthians. So this was Christ-like sacrificial self-denial, not something to criticize him for. It was a conscious decision. Just like back in chapter 2, remember, he intentionally decided Resolved to know nothing more than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He wasn't going to use the rhetorical tools of the time to just try to wow people and win a following and persuade people, manipulate people. He refused to do that. He wanted their faith to rest in the power of God, not in His rhetorical ability. Okay? So it seems that not only were there some Corinthians more concerned about their rights, than the well-being of their weaker brothers and sisters, chapter 8, they were viewing Paul's denial of rights as a sign of inferiority when they should have recognized it as his Christ-like glory. Okay, So he needs to teach them to deny themselves for the sake of love, and he has to defend his own ways and his means so that they will follow him rather than judge and criticize him or be open to that judgment and criticism. So do you see where these chapters hang together, how they hang together, and where they're headed? Look at the kind of climax conclusion at the end of chapter 10, just so you see where this is headed. Look at 1031. Just flip a page there. This is the conclusion of this section. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Don't put any obstacle in the way. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but the advantage of many, that they may be saved. And then, unfortunately, the chapter break there. But the next verse is key. It's the climax. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul's life is shaped by the gospel, by the cross of Christ. Just like... Jesus' life, okay, shaped by this self-emptying of rights, right? Remember Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he's equal with God. He did not account, he did not count that equality, something to be held onto, grasped, 
used to his own advantage. Okay, he did not hang on to his divine rights and prerogatives or privileges or entitlements for his own sake. He could have just stayed in heaven. But no, for our sake, he humbled himself and took on flesh and lived this humble life of a servant and died a shameful death on a cross in our place. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So just stop for a second and think about this. What rights do the son of, does the Son of God have? He's got every right in the universe. How did he treat those rights? He totally set them aside for the sake of love, for us. Just think of what he endured, what he embraced, what he willingly embraced in life, in the incarnation, in life, and in death. Think about the limitations that he... I mean, we can't even begin to grasp this. Infinite condescension. How in the world... I mean, it's like, it's like trying to imagine, like, the craziest, brightest, biggest, you know, there are stars that fit inside, that fill the, the, the orbit of Jupiter. Like, our sun is kind of an average star. And the, our sun is also kind of average on the heat level. So imagine the brightest star. I mean, we can't even begin to grasp how big and how hot this is. Imagine, this is just one star. You know, he obviously spoke all the stars into existence. Take one of those stars and just put it in, a, in like a glow stick. Like, how do you do that? I mean, that's just crazy. Like, you'd be so afraid it would break open. Like, ah! We're all going to be toast. The incarnation is crazy limitation. Willingly embraced. How does that even, I don't even know how that happens. But the limitations... The reputation that he took on for our sake, he lived under the cloud of being a bastard his whole life. Shotgun wedding for you and me. The suffering, the temptation, the betrayal from his friends, and then his death unjust, you know, kangaroo court, all the injustices, the suffering, the pain, so cruel, you know, being spit upon and punched by people who he actually was sustaining <laughs> in that moment, and then ultimately forsaken by his father. So all of this humbling, taking on the form of a servant, slavery all the way to death, the shameful death on the cross, all of that slavery for the sake of your freedom and my freedom. We're free now, free forever. Free from guilt and shame, the consequences of our sin, rather than depart from me, I never knew you, rather than condemnation forever, no appeals in that court, instead justified forevermore, we have already heard it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have recognized your sin, God's opened your eyes to see your sin, you've recognized Jesus as, as the only Savior, and you've trusted in him, not because of any fitness you brought to the table, just because you brought your need to the table and Jesus met that need. You trusted him. If you haven't, you can do that today. I appeal to you to do that today. Okay? That's 
the freedom that he gives us, freedom from all the consequences of our sin, freedom to know who we are now and forever. We don't have to prove ourselves anymore. We are beloved sons and daughters, and you know what? He chose us and changed us when we were a mess. So do you think your bad days are going to put his love on the hook? Like, I don't know, maybe he loves me, he loves me not. No. Total freedom, total security, forever. All because of this willing slavery, this willing denial of rights, emptying of prerogatives and entitlements for our sake. So we have this amazing freedom as, as believers. We're free for freedom. Christ has set us free. The truth has set us free. So what's the freedom for? What's your freedom for? Well, Paul answers it for us in the next few verses here. Verses 19 to 23. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all, Paul is not beholden to anyone. He's not in anybody's pocket. I have made myself a servant to all. He is obligated to love everyone. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Uh, Martin Luther, great German reformer, he wrote in 1520 a book called The Freedom of the Christian, and here's how it begins. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. He goes on and says, these two theses seem to contradict each other, but both are Paul's own statements, who says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, and in Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. Love, by its very nature, is ready to serve and be subject to him who is loved. So again, this is just, we should hear the echoes of the teaching of our Lord, the life of our Lord Jesus You remember in Mark 10, he talks about the nature of authority in the world. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the nations lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came... So the highest one, the greatest one, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul the Apostle is following Jesus. Jesus was the greatest, and he was the greatest of servants. He truly was the servant of all. If anyone has accommodated to win the many, it's Jesus, right? I mean, just... He could have come and demanded our obedience. He came as a lowly peasant and willingly embraced the shame to identify with us. He he stood in the line of sinners to be baptized by John the Baptist. He wasn't a sinner. He ate with tax collectors and sinners and got the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard. He touched lepers. He went to the well to talk to the Samaritan woman. Do you see how he accommodated for the sake of love to reach all kinds of people? It's beautiful. 
He accommodated as the messenger, but without ever compromising the message. So if that's the case for the son, then most certainly it ought to be true for everyone who is less great than the son, like infinitely less great than the son, like you and me. So watch how Paul made himself the servant to all. Look at verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Isn't that a little crazy? Paul, last time I checked, you're a Jew. So why do you need to become as a Jew in order to win Jews? Well, this is actually profound. Paul can and he must flex in each context because he actually doesn't belong in any of these categories anymore because he's free. He is so much in the Jesus camp. Like his identity is so much just new creation in Christ. You know, memory verse for, fighter verse for today. The old has passed away, the new has come. New creation, new creature, new people, new race, as it were. So identity, it's this new third category. So Paul can then, because he totally knows who he is, he can actually flex with Whatever context the Lord places him in, leads him into. And the same for us. He can win people in all those categories. And actually, what he wants to do is not just win them into their own category. He wants to win them into his category so that they also can be disciples who make disciples in whatever context. They need to become, they need to become Christians like him. So here's the thing. The freer you are from being an American, this is a terrible broad brush statement here, but you'll get the idea. The freer you are from being an American Christian, the better missionary you'll be to Americans. Tracking? And the better Christian you'll win because you'll win them to Christ and not some Jesus plus my particular brand of Christianity in my, you know, whatever, comfortable, suburban, you know, my politics, or who knows? This is what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about one who identified with others for their salvation. Jesus identified with sinners in the extreme, and Paul is also, because he's following Jesus, able to flex into all these different categories. So if you're born in the South, I mean, this is maybe to make it a little bit more concrete. If you're born in the South, but you just could not ever reach city dwellers in the North, Maybe you're too much a Southerner and not enough a Christian. If you love the urban lifestyle and vibe, and God called you to move to a rural farm town filled with rednecks, and you don't want to go, and you're having trouble loving them, maybe you're too much a city slicker, to use their term, and not enough a Christ follower at your core. Okay, I mean, we could multiply examples, and Paul actually does here because he's going all over the place telling people about Jesus. To those under the law, it's the end of verse 20, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, just like chapter 8, right? That weakness issue, that I might win the weak. 
The bottom line is, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Okay, so if you see this in the context of verses 1 to 18, that was the first point. Paul's great governing desire is for eternal blessings, not temporal material blessings. This is what his freedom is for for reaching as many as possible. So one commentator summarized it well. He said, freedom is important, but in Christian terms, it's never the freedom of a subatomic particle to whiz around in all directions in an apparently random fashion. It is freedom for, for the Messiah, for God's people, for those who need the gospel. Paul's overall point is to make them see that Christian freedom is not freedom to do what you like, but freedom from all the things that stop you being the person God really wants you to be which is freedom for service of God and the gospel. So Paul yielded up his rights. He was willing to be flexible for the sake of reaching and winning as many as possible. So obviously in this, you know, we talk about contextualization, you know, sometimes that term. Coming into a context and understanding understanding it so that you can make the gospel understandable in that context. We obviously have to guard against chameleonry, (laughs) but not caring about how you must flex means that you're not concerned enough about the demands of the gospel. You're not shaped enough by the cross of Christ. So again, let me just give some practical examples. I think sometimes we think about this in relation to missionaries, but we need to think about this as far as us and the people God's put in our lives. So let's say you're having lunch with a strict Roman Catholic coworker, friend, whatever, on Friday. Duh. Don't go to the barbecue. You should think about that because you care about this person. You don't want any unnecessary obstacle, even when they have to say, uh, could we pick a different place? Let's say you're having some Jews or Muslims over for dinner. You're going to go out of your way to make sure everything is kosher and for the Jew or halal for the Muslim, right? You're not going to serve bacon bits in the salad. Okay, or let's say you move to majority Muslim country. If you're a Christian woman, this means that you and your daughters as well are going to take great care to dress so as not to offend and put unnecessary obstacles to the spread of the gospel. That can be a little off-putting, especially in a really hot climate. Self-denial but it would be for the sake of the gospel. How about reaching out to vegetarian neighbors? (laughs) Do you make fun of them? No, you willingly change your menu when you have them over or when you go out with them for a meal. See, if you are all about you, then we chafe at this stuff. This is dumb. What a dumb lifestyle choice, you know? What a dumb tradition. This isn't fair. Why do I have to be the one to flex? No, of course you're the one to flex. You follow the ultimate servant who flexed infinitely in order to win you. So you're a servant. You don't want any unnecessary obstacle to the gospel. So we want the gospel. The gospel is offensive. So we're not trying to take away the offense of the cross, but we don't need to let other things get in the way and route to the cross being the fork in the road, right? Message doesn't change, but we dare not let our personalities or our quirks or our personal preferences become 
the obstacle. So it applies to all kinds of cultural sensitivities. This is why we ought to care about our friends and get to know them and learn customs and so forth. Here, you know, the nations have come to us, so personal space, (laughs) greeting etiquette, hospitality etiquette, food etiquette, what you eat and don't eat, human respect etiquette. Can you imagine the difference of being a missionary in Australia as opposed to being a missionary in South Korea? Do you know the personalities, the types? Like, totally different. So again, implications of cruciformity, how we love well people who are unlike us. Cruciformity, contextualization go together. Okay, So there are opportunities here as a church. I mean, oh boy, there's so many different things here. Like, do you think about the jargon you use? Sometimes Christians just speak in such like, unintelligible ways, these crazy sanctified terms, you know, that just, do you really even know what that means? Because you can't make it concrete to a person outside the church. Do you ever think about that? Good grief. Think about what you're saying through their ears. And maybe, maybe the reason you don't think about it enough is because you're not engaged enough with people who are not believers. You don't think enough from their perspective because you haven't had enough experience with their perspective. So again, we all ought to be looking at the little world around us that God's planted us in as missionaries. I mean, it's obvious. Of course, we talk about this if you go to, you know, Southeast Asia or whatever, whatever place. But listen, if you move to, to Tennessee or you move to Seattle, can you see some differences there as far as reaching people and contextualizing? Of course. So, a good way to summarize it that I've heard before is the closed hand and the open hand, okay? Theology, the gospel, the cross, it's in the closed hand, non-negotiable. We're not messing with the message, right? But the open hand, methodology, music, how many times are musical preferences so stinking selfish? Like, come on. Churches just bicker and whine over this stuff so much. No, open hand. Gospel, we're not going to let go of that. Methodology, flexible. So Paul is extremely flexible, but he also holds non-negotiables. He has flexible inflexibility. Contextualization without compromise. Okay? Reaching out without selling out. We should be wrestling with this. Do you wrestle with this? Do you wrestle with this with your neighborhood, your coworkers, your family members, your friends? So we can't become chameleons, but we also can't be lazy and give no thought to or not do the hard work of contextualization and creativity. So we're not of this world, but we sure are in it. <laughs> so we can't retreat, can't withdraw. We've got to engage to influence and be salt and light. So we should be praying that we would learn to do these things well, be courageous and bold and uncompromising, and wise and gracious and respectful and clear. Okay? We also need to learn to be honest with ourselves. I mean, do you know some of the leverage on your soul when it comes to these issues? So it's good not to want to burn a bridge, right? Relational bridge. But are you ever tempted to never say anything offensive, even if it's true? 
because you so fear burning a bridge? Okay, if, if you fall off the horse on that side, you need to make sure that you are holding tightly. And the cross is shaping you. The truth of the cross is shaping you and your speech. But also, some people are so focused on the truth, they don't care much about how they explain it so that it's understandable. And again, the manner of the cross, the manner of the accommodation of Jesus. Look at how he spoke to the woman at the well. Look at how he spoke to the Pharisees. Look at how he spoke. It's different. It's not this cookie-cutter approach. Four steps, four steps, four steps. Like, no, he engaged with that person. Also, I mean, we can think about contextualization so much that we're tempted to think that our presentation, how savvy or smart it is, is what results are going to rest on. No, we are still just utterly reliant upon the Spirit of God. We can sow, we can water, but only God can cause the growth, right? So we need to learn from Paul. We need to follow Paul. Follow me as I follow Christ, 11.1. So, and I need to quit here. <laughs> just looking at the clock. Um, So just really quick, I, I've got to say this. The other night, community group, one of the guys in the group asked about the vision for outreach at Bethel. And, you know, we do some evangelistic events like the Ladies' Tea. We've done some, you know, seminars like the Christianity Explored. Um, you know, there's other times when there's like a programmed sort of outreach, which is good and it's great. But listen, evangelism in the main, like reaching out to our community for Christ in the main, is not the calling of the professionals. It's not programmed. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple called to make disciples. So the wide spot in the road is very much each of us owning this, following Paul as he followed Jesus, and living this out in our relational spheres. You know? So your neighborhood. I, I hear people say sometimes, like, oh, my workplace, I'm like the only Christian in my work. Oh, really? That's awesome. You mean God entrusted all those people to you? What an opportunity. What are we thinking? Like, what do you want? You want to have like a little heaven on earth and nobody that you have to finally talk to because, you know, no, that's not following Christ, right? So this is why we did the relational network mapping seminar a little while back so that you begin to intentionally think about the relationships that God's placed in your life. Because, again, what does outreach look like for us? It looks very normal and ordinary and everyday and having your neighbors over, having your coworker over, having, you know, somebody, little league family or whatever it is. And so the cross needs to shape how we view our relational network and how we intentionally reach out to the people God's placed in our lives. So what rights, what comforts, have you given up for the sake of the gospel? Time, money, leisure, comfort, privacy. If not, if, if not much, I wonder if you need to focus a bit on the gain because it doesn't seem like the pain is worth it. So I love this quote. It's John Piper in The Hidden Smile of God speaking of David Brainer, who died at 29, but he spent his brief little life reaching out to native Indians not far from here, a couple hundred years ago. And he writes this, There are a few native Indians, perhaps several hundred, who now and for eternity owe their everlasting life to the direct love and ministry of David Brainerd, who, 
can describe the value of one soul transferred from the kingdom of darkness and from the weeping and gnashing of teeth to the kingdom of God's dear son. If we live 29 years or if we live 99 years, would not any hardships be worth the saving of one person from the eternal torments of hell for the everlasting enjoyment of the glory of God? So in light of the gospel gain that is at stake, we should embrace the cruciform pain of self-denial for the sake of love. That's where Paul finishes here in 24 to 27. He wants to enslave his body so that he's free to love forever. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a wilting, perishing wreath. It just withers and dies. But we, an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, literally make it my slave, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. So are you coasting spiritually? Are you meandering? Are you just kind of floating along? Or are you running? Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race. Let's throw off everything that hinders, sin that so easily entangles, and run the race that's marked out before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. The gain is worth the pain. We've got to discipline ourselves for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of love, following Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, and you'll really gain your life, and you'll be a means of others gaining their life in Christ. So if you and I are slaves of our selfish appetites, we're going to be centered on ourselves rather than on others. And if we're more concerned about our own interests, we're not going to be much good to anybody else. So let's pray, and we're going to sing a song that's appropriate here to close, calling ourselves as the church to arise and follow our crucified Savior that as many as possible might live. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. And I pray that we would not want to keep that treasure to ourselves, but rather share it and give it to as many as possible. In his name, amen.